This is Creating Windows, Not Bars, a monthly show on Justice Radio on WMPG with your hosts, Linda Small and Mackenzie Kelly. Today, we are talking with Rebecca Kurtz, Peer Services and Recovery Manager of Maine's National Alliance on Mental Illness, and Wendy Allen of the Restorative Justice Institute of Maine about the effects of social stigma on justice-impacted people's lives and their families, and the impact of stigma on the ability to create a successful transition back into our communities. But first, a little information about us. I'm Linda Small, a project coordinator with Maine Prisoner Advocacy Coalition and executive director of Reentry Sisters, an organization with a trauma-informed and gender approach to reentry. And I'm Mackenzie Kelly, a recovery coach and peer mentor with Maine Prisoner Reentry Network and the program director of Reentry Sisters. For the past several months, we have worked together to provide support and community for justice impacted women as they reunify with their families, look for work and housing and complete their educational aspirations. Our show explores safety and community and asks what it's like for people to come home after serving time in prison. Today, we're talking about the impact of having a criminal record. I'm someone who has lived through the criminal legal system, and I understand the difficulties of returning to my home and community. Unfortunately, there have been hundreds of people in Maine who cycle in and out of incarceration due to stigma within our communities, which leads to a lack of support, work opportunities, housing, and education. Rebecca, as someone who works with people with mental illness and understands the impact of stigma on people's lives, can you please explain what stigma is and what it looks like? Thank you, Mackenzie. So stigma is really the social, the, the negative attitudes and perspectives that we have on people based on something that may be outside of their control, but nonetheless is looked upon as less than disappro- or, or disapproved of. We see it in mental health. We see it in incarceration. We see it in, in people that have certain diseases. It's an idea that, that society holds that someone is less than or unworthy because of, of a situation that they may be in or, or part of their life, the quality of their life. It, it tends to uh, impact the whole person, both their, their mental health, their physical health, and their um, emotional well-being, and their ability to sort of live a dignified and productive life because they feel less than, they feel as though they are uh, not worthy of success and happiness like other people. And how do you feel like that uh, looks like in the people that you serve? So I have the pleasure of working with the women at the Women's Correction Center um, and the Reentry Center. And I've also done some work with folks at the Peer Center in Waterville. And what I've seen is that it, it, limits, it limits their whole vision of who they can become, fills them with a sense of shame, a sense of hopelessness, and I think despair. And the people around them treat them with those same feelings and have expectations of them that they're never going to be successful, that they're always going to be um, in trouble or less than or always going to s- struggle with uh, whatever's going on in their life. So they don't get chances. They do, they're not offered opportunities and they are, have a very limited perspective on themselves. And when, as Mackenzie was talking about, they, it, once they are released from incarceration, the stigma carries forward and, and impacts their ability to get jobs, to find housing, to get transportation, to get loans, like student loans, housing, all of those things. It's it not only uh, inter- is it's not only internalized by them, but society around them 
continues to blame or to, to discriminate against them unfairly. Thank you, Rebecca. Uh, Wendy, as a formerly incarcerated mom, what kind of stigmatizing hurdles did your children face while you were incarcerated? Thank you, Linda. My children faced many hurdles. I, the school systems, once found out that I was incarcerated, looked at them differently, treated them with utmost disrespect. Um, teachers telling my children that they shouldn't interact with me because I was a bad person. In turn, it created one of my children to develop an eating disorder. Even after release in current, uh, the school systems are teaching children that people that are incarcerated deserve to be there and that they are bad people. Um, people with substance use disorder choose to choose the substance over their children. And it's, so it's created an emotional roller coaster for my kids. Uh, my kids had to go to therapy for years because of this. Uh, the school bus driver once told my son he should be the poster child for the world's worst mother. So the school system is creating this generation to have this stigma against those that are incarcerated without looking at the big picture of how, how it affects the children and how it's creating more stigma for the future instead of building community, they're separating it. Has there been a shift in the stigma that you've seen with your children since uh, before you, when you were incarcerated to when you were out in the community? Yes, <laughs> yes, actually. One of my children I have custody back of, she lives at home with me. And although um, the school system is still teaching her that incarcerated individuals are bad people and deserve to be there, she stands up for herself and she speaks out about it, you know, to the school and to the teachers. My other children didn't speak to me for a while while I was inside. And now, although they live with my mother, um, I have a pretty close-knit relationship with them, and they're understanding that people inside are not bad people. We do still love them. So it's it's definitely been a shift, a positive shift, um, but I think that communities need to do better in teaching our children, you know, use more person-centered language and educate the children about substance use disorder, the you know, that it is a disease, it's not a choice, and that people that are incarcerated are not people that you need to be scared of. They're not bad people. It's, you know, people that got caught for a, you know, making a bad decision. Thank you, Wendy, um, for sharing your personal story. It's extremely powerful. Um, and we appreciate your vulnerability and your courage in sharing with us what it's like to return to your community. You are listening to Creating Windows, Not Bars, Justice Radio with Linda Small and Mackenzie Kelly. Today, we are talking about how st social stigma affects the people and families of those returning from prison with Rebecca Kurtz of NAMI and Wendy Allen of Restorative Justice. More than 20,000 Maine children has a parent who has served time. That's one in every 14 children. Maine's rate of incarcerated parents is the highest in New England and slightly higher than the national average. 
Since 1980, the number of women in prison has increased 794%. In Maine, people with mental illness are four and a half times more likely to be arrested than those in the general population. Upon their release, many face continuing social stigmatization when looking for work, housing, and acceptance. Rebecca, you work with Maine's currently and formerly incarcerated population. What effect does stigmatization have on their well-being, and how has it affected the people that you serve? Boy, I, I'm I'm sorry, I'm just mulling over everything that Wendy just said. Just I'm sort of um, struck by the honesty and the rawness and the absolute truth of what what she just shared. And to me, that's a, a tragedy. The work that I've done in the um, Women's Center and Reentry Center in Wyndham has been somewhat limited, but I know that the vast majority of those women are not there as violent criminals. They are there because they have a mental health challenge, including a substance use disorder. And that, in my experience, um, recovery requires compassion, requires treatment, requires second chances, requires all of us to give them hope and to lift them up. And that's not what's happening. Um, I know that the 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 Wyndham Correctional Center, the gender uh, responsive program is doing its very best, but quite often the, the emphasis is on education, which is wonderful. MIT, you know, they're getting their degrees, but what they really need is, is um, supports around their mental health. And so that, so that they can not only um, survive and thrive while they're incarcerated, but when they walk out the door, they have a sense of dignity and a sense of pride and are not shamed into um, old behavior, but instead walk forward into, into healthy and positive and productive behavior. Um, I think about stigma as something that we internalize. I know that in my own recovery, the first, I don't know, decade that I was in recovery, I didn't tell anyone what the various challenges that I had, because if I did, they'd say, oh, I'm so sorry, and they'd turn and they'd walk away. Today, they'll say congratulations or good job. It's a, it's a, it's a shift. But that's only one part of the impact of, of you know, the change that we've seen. We still see these women struggling to find housing, uh, struggling to find jobs, struggling to use the education that they got while incarcerated in, in meaningful uh, employment outside. They don't have the supports to reunite effectively with their kids. And they still have internalized that message of, I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. There's something wrong with me. And the reality is there's nothing wrong with them. It's, it, what, what is wrong is the way society views people who have been incarcerated. And that has to change. It's changing slowly, I believe. And I'm, I'm so thrilled at the work that, that Wendy and Mackenzie and, and Linda, you're doing and, and all these people who are newly into recovery from substance use and mental health challenges, celebrating recovery, celebrating who they are, but we can't stop. We have got to keep going because I, you know, the recidivism rate is something like, I think 80% of all incarcerated people return after nine years. And why is that? It's because of the obstacles that stigma puts in their path and the messages that they've internalized about themselves and the messages that society continues to impose on them. And that has to stop. Do you have any ideas on how we can change that language or the stigma once a person is reintegrated into the community? Boy, there's there's lots of things we can do. Um, Wendy hit one of them right on the right on the head. Is that person first language? Um, recognizing that labels confine us into very small boxes, and stigmatizing labels are even more more of, of an obstruction. 
focus on the person. Um, continue doing the work that we're doing to put a face on mental health challenges, put a face on incarceration, put a face on recovery. Um, I don't know, you guys, Mackenzie and Wendy, you're pretty young, but when I was in the 80s, when HIV AIDS first came out, um, horrific amount of stigma. And the LGBTQ community said, you know, we're not gonna sit around and watch our friends die. We're gonna do something about this. And they, they took it to the streets and they celebrated and they, they demanded support and they demanded uh, a place at the table. And we have to continue doing that. So the, the incarcerated uh, or formerly incarcerated population needs to continue to put a face on recovery and do so without shame. No apologies, no apologies. We can't apologize for a, a mental health challenge that we have. People don't apologize for having cancer. They don't apologize for having diabetes. They cannot apologize for having a substance use or a mental health challenge. It's a, it's a, it's a health disorder, health issue, not a moral issue. And then also I think cultivate allies. You know, don't be afraid to tell your story. I know that when I talk to someone um, about what I've been through, they go, oh my God, I had no idea. And then they start talking to me about people that they know who have struggled and they say, how can I help? And, and they, you start to cultivate compassion and you start to, to cultivate understanding. And soon you have sort of an army of allies that are helping out. And, they'll, and those voices, when they're galvanized and come together, they can change legislation. They can change entire community perspectives. They can change the world. Um, Margaret Mead wrote something about, um, uh, what did she say, that never forget or always believe that a small and dedicated group of people can change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has. Um, and the folks who have lived experience with incarceration and mental health are the ones who have the most powerful voice, have the ability to make those changes, and we need to support them in that as much as possible. That's great. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Wendy, in what way were you personally affected by stigmatization? Oh, in what way wasn't I affected would be the easier question. Upon release, I come back to the same community that my I was um, arrested in. Um, so my name was well known. Law enforcement was the same law enforcement that um, I had interactions with before I went to prison. So coming back into the same community, was pretty difficult, um, you know, being followed by law enforcement. Um, although I wasn't doing anything wrong, um, being pulled over and literally violated um, in their pat downs, um, asking me why I'm carrying Narcan if I'm clean. Um, I was even once. Um, asked if I was selling Narcan because I had an overabundance of it and then explained to them that I was a distributor and trainer um, accused of, of lying. Um, housing. I went to uh, apply for apartments to live in. And although they took my money for application fees around $800, I was denied because of my criminal background. Um, so going into, again, going into the school system and saying, um, I am, you know, my children's mother, you know, stating my kids' names and um, 
them having to call to make sure it was okay that I was there. So it's a lot of, you know, looking at my history rather than who I am today, because my history doesn't define who I am today. So people that don't know me, I do public speaking and I speak around my lived experience with incarceration and substance use disorder. And much like Rebecca had said, um, before I speak, you know, I introduced myself as a program director for a diversion program. And then I go into my personal story and I get a lot of, wow, I never would have thought. And my comeback for that is, is there a specific look? Because these things don't discriminate. I'm a person. I'm a human, just like you. And so, yes, stigma has affected me in many, many, many ways. Um, <clears throat> I don't let it bring me down. There's two different kinds of stigma, internal and external, right? And so for a long time, I held internal stigma and believed all of the things that were said about me in community that, you know, I was a criminal, I was a junkie, I was never going to amount to anything. But since changing that internal stigma into, into positive and saying, no, like I deserve this, this, I am a strong woman. I have overcome these, these barriers and my voice matters. It is it is creating positivity around me in community because I let my voice be heard and that's educating communities so that other people do not have to go through what I experienced. Well, thank you for sharing your story. That is such a courageous way um, of facing the social stigma of you and your children. So thank you for sharing that. How did that affect, um, how did that social stigma affect your successful return to the community? I know you touched a little bit about um, housing and work opportunities, but what about your personal life? Were, were there difficulties um, in just being social in your community? Um, good question, Linda. Uh, yes, <laughs> um, I, I had a really hard time going into grocery stores, um, going out shopping, um, just going into community in general, um, being stared at, you know, being talked about, um, like obviously being talked about, like people looking and whispering and, you know, doing those fun little things. Um, I kind of isolated a little bit and started to kind of question on if I really belonged, you know, do I belong in community? And it took a little bit, but with my supports, um, which I have an amazing support system with, with not just like job related, but family that I said, no, you know what? I do deserve to be out. And I stepped out of my comfort zone and just went out with my head held high. But it took a while. It took a while because that stigma in, you know, almost caused that internal stigma to come back. 
and almost played like making me believe that these things were true. And had I not educated myself on what was happening before it happened, it's, it would have been real easy to slip back into that rabbit hole again. Great. Thank you so much, Wendy. I really appreciate that. Um, Rebecca, um, question for you. You talked about the importance earlier of the attitudes of, around society. It's a societal issue, right? When it comes to stigma. Um, so do you have any question, um, suggestions for community members that it might create a more accepting environment for families or family members uh, returning from prison? What can oh, I I'm sorry, and I I, um, I sort of was trying to get there around um, you know creating a community of allies, but I, I want to go back to what Wendy had said. People who have been incarcerated know best what those obstacles are going to be. They know best what it's like trying to leave a uh, leave incarceration and rebuild their lives. And I think that like right now, I work with two extraordinary women who were formerly incarcerated in Wyndham. We actually go back into the prison to teach mental health per se, but they work one-on-one -on -one with the with the residents. And they've also worked with the COs. And the COs are going, oh my God, we had no idea that someone in recovery or someone who was incarcerated before can have a, a, a fruitful and abundant life. So those two women have changed the perspective of the, the COs and the staff in, in, the, in the prison. They also are giving the residents hope. And so I think part, when I think of the community, there's the community who's directly affected by mental health challenges and incarceration, but then there's also everyone else that knows them. And I think we really have to work together. And I, again, I'll get back to the people who have that lived experience have the most powerful voice. And if more of them can go either back into the prisons or continue bridging, making those bridges that they are when all the different organizations that are now available with its MPRN, um, the, uh, uh, Reentry Sisters that you, you both are doing, um, the advocacy projects, uh, all of those projects are working to support that group of people. And that just needs to be made bigger. I think it's like if the people will lead, the leaders will follow and continuing to do the work that you're doing and help us, help us, society understand what it is that you all need. Because it's, you know, I'm kind of aghast when I think a woman is released with uh, maybe a, a gift card and clothing and, um, you know, a, a, a ability to stay at a hotel for a night or so. It's like, how do you rebuild your life? Anyone rebuild their life and then someone rebuild their life affected by a stigma. Um, so it's going to take a full-blown community effort, um, but I think it needs to be led by the people with the lived experience. I really do. Um, because if you don't, stigma becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, not only because of the person who has internalized it, but because of all the external that they're going to continue on that cycle of reincarceration, incarceration, incarceration, unless we all work together to change that. And it means an open heart and an open mind. Um, and I've had that same experience. I've, I've not been incarcerated, but I had a really um, horrific time getting into recovery, multiple rehab jobs. Um, and when I told people later on that I was in recovery, they're like, oh my God, I can't imagine you were like that before. And it created that piece of compassion. And that's where we really need to start, you know, kind hearts. And, and, and again, and Wendy, I just look at you and I think, holy cow, as a woman 
who has lived through what you've lived through, the courage that it's taken. And we need to recognize it takes courage. Recovery, whether it's from incarceration, substance use, any other mental health challenge, it takes courage. And some of the most courageous, creative, thoughtful, and compassionate people I've ever met are the people who have had the lived experience that, that we share. Um, and we just need to, we need to let people know, we really do. Thank you for that insight, Rebecca. It is so important to raise the voices of folks with lived experience. Um, and we know that um, everybody on this call and also organizations like Restorative Justice and NAMI um, are there to support those people, right? Who are trying to raise um, this awareness. Um, and there are, uh, there are ways for people to have that voice. And we so appreciate both of you um, speaking with us today. You've got about a little tiny bit of time any final thoughts, anything we didn't touch on? Go ahead, Rebecca. I just, and I had a couple of thoughts that are more policy oriented as opposed to community. Um, we need to pursue efforts to expunge records um, that they shouldn't follow someone wherever they go and get rid of that little box that says, I'm a felon. Get rid of that on all applications. It is, as Wendy so astutely said, that's my history. That's not who I am today. Um, continue to train law enforcement. NAMI Maine does a uh, crisis intervention training with um, law enforcement to help them understand substance use and other mental health challenges and, and treat people with um, kindness and compassion and, and, and also respect. Um, continue to, to spread those efforts around the state. Um, the specialty courts, I think, I think the, um, you know, instead of just dumping someone in prison or in jail right away, let's give them other opportunities, other avenues. But let's not confine it just to one pathway to recovery. There are multiple pathways to recovery with harm in the very basic and yet the most effective. Let's recognize that not everybody recovers in the same way. Um, and then use evidence-based. We, we, have, we have the evidence today to know what works and what doesn't work with mental health challenges and with incarceration. And let's start employing those. Let's really... Um, you know, start at the at both the social political level and the community level. Thank you so much, uh, Wendy and Rebecca. Through these stories, we have heard how stigma affects the mental health of children, of incarcerated parents, and returning citizens to our communities. In coming shows, we will begin to explore public safety, second chances, and the experiences and struggles of returning citizens to create meaningful and productive lives. Next week, please join Representative Charlotte Warren on Justice Radio to learn about the upcoming Maine 131st legislative session and what can be done to redefine and reimagine equity, restoration, and justice through legislative action. 